RadioInfluence.com. Joining me today on the Real Animals podcast, this edition of the Real Animals podcast, uh, a, a recent acquaintance of mine, we are quickly becoming friends, uh, one of the guys that I truly look up to uh, in the industry, uh, not just because of his fishing prowess, although that, uh, as we're going to get into, is extremely impressive, uh, but he's a gym rat, just like me, he spends a lot of time in there, so uh, I know if, if all hell breaks loose and we're drawing lines in the sand, Captain Rob Fordyce and myself are going to be on the same side of that line, because I do not want to wrestle with the voodoo daddy. How are you today, my friend? I'm good, brother. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you taking some time and, uh, and, uh, chatting with me a little bit. So, you know, there's, there's a ton of accolades. There's a ton of, of stuff kind of surrounding Rob Fordyce. If you just Google Rob Fordyce, there's a lot of really cool stuff out there. Um, but I want to dive into how does, how does Rob Fordyce become one of the best charter captains in the country? How does that whole journey start, Rob? You know, as a, as, as a young kid, I mean, four or five years old, uh, I loved fishing. And, and unlike most little kids, I had patience as a little kid. You know, I didn't have to catch a fish every, every other cast to, to, to stay attentive to what was going on. Um, and it didn't take long before, you know, family vacations turned into more, more about fishing trips because my, my dad and mom saw how interested I was in the game. And when we weren't out in the boat fishing, I was at the dock trying to figure out how to catch the snappers that wouldn't bite and, <laughs> and so forth. And, and that's kind of carried, carried through my whole career. As in high school, I got pretty damn serious about fishing. I started fly fishing a lot. And in those days, South Florida had a tournament called the Metropolitan South Florida Fishing Tournament. Short, short term, it was called the Met. Right. And, uh, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with it. The boundaries were basically from Key West to Tampa, across to the East Coast to the Melbourne area and South, that giant triangle. Anybody that was in it for six months could fish in the tournament and enter different species of fish on different kinds of tackle. And as a youngster, I, I, I grew up around some, some guys that were pretty serious in that tournament, a guy named John Still and another guy named Al Fluger. And the the cool aspect of that tournament to me was you, you, you didn't just go out and catch one fish to win the master angler award, which was the, the highest trophy you could win. You had to catch many different species on many different types of tackle. And, and that really interested me. And in my final years of high school, I spent uh, pursuing that, trying to win that award. Most guys that did win it throughout the years would spend 30 or 40 grand with with captains, you know, they'd hire captains, inshore and offshore guides to catch, you know, catch various species of fish on various types of tackle. I did all this, all the fishing I, I was doing when I was doing the tournament was on my own pretty much wow. and with buddies. And to make a long story short, my, my senior year of high school, the, the school wasn't going to let me graduate, not because of bad grades, but I had 70 absences. <laughs> But but I wasn't just out playing hooky. I was out fishing, you know, trying to win this tournament. And I actually did win it. I was the youngest guy to ever do it, and I was the only guy to ever do it that that was non-guided. Um, so that kind of began my serious, you know, fishing career and 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 my my desire to to maybe pursue it as a as a living. I think you you touched on something very early uh, in that when you 
said when you were young, you know, four or five years old, that you had patience, which, you know, being, mm-hmm. being a charter captain, uh, especially the way we fish here in, in West Central Florida with, you know, bait wells full of pilchards and all that, uh, patient, yep. patient kids are, are few and far between. I've seen a couple uh, in my 20 years on the water, but that, that's probably two. Um, so yeah. I, I would think that that right away, the light bulb went off above my head and I thought, is that has to play a part in the fact that, I mean, to me, you know, and, and you and I just kind of met here a couple of years ago, but, but, you know, everything leading me to meeting Rob Fordyce was all this praise from all the people in the industry that knew you. And, you know, I had several people come up to me and say, listen, you know, I don't know why you and Rob Fordyce aren't friends because you guys, you know, could be twins. You guys are like, you like a lot of the same things. I think if we put you two in a room, you know, you'd be drinking beers and high-fiving and laughing and joking and, and get along like you've been friends for 30 years. Yeah. But but the the from the fishing side of it, it was always Rob Fordyce, the 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 tarpon fly. I don't want to say master, but obviously it's to me that's kind of what your thing is, right? I mean that's Rob yeah. Fordyce. When people picture Rob Fordyce, it's up on the push pole, either pointing somebody to, you know, fish for the fly, or up on the polling platform doing your fly thing yourself. So right. you know, is that? I mean, obviously, if I mean if you're patient, I would think that would lend itself greatly to that being your thing. You know, I think uh, a, a couple things, you know, have led uh, my career in the direction that it's gone and, and, and made me, allowed me to, to be able to accomplish some pretty cool things along the way. One was definitely be patient. I mean, you, you've got to be patient in fishing regardless of, of what kind of fishing it is. But at the same time, you've you got to be positively patient. And what I mean by that is got to do your homework and 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 understand that the moves you're making or the place you're fishing or or, or what you've decided to do in a, in a big time tournament, you got to feel confident about what you're doing. And as soon as you start doubting that confidence, then your patience goes away. Sure. So so to have patience is a is a must, but you got to be confidently patient if that makes sense. It does. You got to you got to know that where you're sitting and being patient is going to pay off. That's right. Right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. You got to know that the, 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 the tarpon are coming down that beach at some point this morning, we're going to, we're going to get our shots. And, and yeah. that's really and that, hard. You know, that's that, hard to do. It is hard to do. And, and it's not something that you, you come across or, or encounter that type of mindset overnight. I mean, that's, that's hours on the water. You know, that's just time putting, putting in your time and, and understanding the game. And, you know, I would say the other, the other main thing that has led me to success, whether it be guiding or tournaments or fishing show, whatever it is, I've never been satisfied with my, not with my knowledge of the game. You know, I've never awakened any morning and said, you know what, I know how to do this. I don't need to go look, for, look at new things. I don't need to try new techniques. From day one, the first time I ever went fishing, even as a little kid, tomorrow when I go fishing, I'm going to be trying new things, trying to better my game. And I've, you know, I've just never been satisfied with what I know about it, regardless of what I've done. And I think anybody that, that enters any sport that, that's successful at it, whether it be a quarterback or a linebacker or a, or a home run hitter in baseball, they're never satisfied with what they've done. So they're always trying to improve. Yeah, I, 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 I say a lot of times in my, in my seminars and you know, on the radio show and stuff like that, I tell people that it's the, the best fishermen that I've ever met, what, the guys that I consider truly great, 
are are so detail oriented mm-hmm. that it's it's almost scary. Like they're they're the the obsession with knowing why the fish are there, where they came from, where they're going, what they're eating, you know, all those little yep. details, wind direction, what you know, all, every little piece of the puzzle, water temp, you know, what was the tide doing at three o'clock in the morning, six hours before I got to this spot. Um, right. All those pieces of the puzzle. And then that insatiable desire to, to learn more, to not only be able to figure it out for today, but be able to figure it out for tomorrow and figure it out for two weeks from now and to figure it out for next tarpon season. When, you know, for me in, in, and I was a Boca grand guide for 10 years. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and I have boxes and boxes and boxes of tarp and tackle that my wife constantly looks at me like, what are you doing with those five giant boxes in the corner? Why <laughs> yeah. are they still here? And I'm like, that's tarp and stuff. She's like five boxes. And these are, they're not shoe boxes. They're you right, know, right. 18 by 30 inches long and, you know, a foot and a half, two foot deep. And, and it's just, right. it's different lines. It's different baits. I mean, it's, you name it, it's in there. And, and for all it, the different scenarios, for every different cover. scenario that we, you know, the 10 years I was, I was guiding in Boca Grande, I can't tell you that. I, I don't think two years were ever the same. It's one mm-hmm. of the most amazing things about tarpon fishing to me is that the scenario almost always changes year to year, whether it's windier this year, the water isn't quite as clean. You know, it, it just, the water temp's not as warm. It, it, it just, there's always something changing with tarpon fishing so you just always have to be ready. And and I That's would true. find, I would figure something out and I'd be like, okay, they're, they're, they're tuned into this color. Now, obviously, you know, with Boca Grande, we did a lot of jig fishing in the past and it would mm-hmm. be one year, it'd be, you know, this color in this size. And so, you know, I would go online and be like, I never want to be without those. So now I have 300 of them because I don't want to be, <laughs> right. I don't want to be without them, <laughs> you know? And I mean, then next year that didn't work. It didn't work. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Now I got 300 yeah. of that color that I haven't used for 10 years, but you never right. know because you could pull in there and one given year and that could be the color again. So Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a pretty interesting uh, part of the game. Now, something I read about you online, obviously I think it was really cool that you were nominated. I think it was 2014 that you were nominated as a top 50 captain in the world. Yes. Yes. I saw that. I think that is really cool. Congratulations on that. And then Thank you. Uh, that was that's a highlight for yeah, sure. Yeah, that's a pretty cool thing for sure. And then um uh, you were the first guy in history to win all four major tarpon fly tournaments. Tell me a little bit about that cuz that to me sounds like really really a ridiculous accomplishment and I want people to understand I fished the Redfish Tournament Trail for 10 years and I never mm-hmm. won a title. I top mm-hmm. five several times, top 10, you know, one year I fished, I fished 10 events and we never fished out of the top 20, but I just, I couldn't, you know, I just could never put a cap on it. So to me, right. I don't know that people understand how hard that is to do, you know, to, well, to, you know, to close the deal and win those titles against fields of other professional anglers. It's very hard to do. It, it, it is. And, you know, from a young age, um, I've had a, I've always liked to fish for everything, but, but I've had a, a genuine passion for, for chasing tarpon. To me, there's tarpon and then there's everything else. <laughs> right. So I, I've pursued tarpon more than I have any other, other species. And, and I started fly fishing for big tarpon, uh, at a pretty young age. And 
the first year I, I started guiding full time, um, I had a mentor in Flip Pallet, and Flip was was guiding quite a bit in those days. It was before the TV stuff had I started. Heard, and I heard him. I think he was a little talented, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that guy. Um, but but Flip had a guy call him from the Keys, and uh, an angler that was wanting to fish one of these big tournaments and ask him flip the fish a minute. And he goes, no, you know, I'm not doing tournaments anymore, but, but I have a young, young guy coming up that, that really loves to tarpon fish. He's, he's pretty good at it. And I think he'd be, he'd make a good fit. Well, in those days, I was from Homestead. I wasn't from the keys. And in the early days of my guiding career, guides that weren't Alan Murata guides and all the tournaments, the big fly tournaments are based in Alan Murata. Right. If you were not from Alan Murata, you were not welcome as a guide. Wow. You know, it was just, there was a close knit community. They didn't, they didn't like outsiders. They had ways that they did things. And so this guy, I, I thought about that, you know, when this guy booked me, you know, he booked me a few practice days and leading up to the tournament. And then for this tournament, I was pretty excited about the whole deal. And about two weeks out, he calls me, he goes, I can't fish you in the tournament. I go, why? What's, what's going on? And this guy was a local that lived in Alamorada. He goes, I, I can't go to eat. And, you know, everybody, everybody's seen the roster, you know, of the tournament. And I, I they see I'm fishing with an out-of-town guide. You know, everybody's kind of shunning me. I just can't do it. I got to book one of the local guides. Well, that infuriated me. You know, one, the guy didn't even offer to pay for the days, you know, two weeks out. Sure. And two, um, you know, I'm like, who are these guys telling me I can't come fish a tournament? You yeah. know? Yeah. So... I, the next day I was in the boat with a couple of anglers I'd fished for quite a while. And I was kind of broadcasting my, my frustration about what had happened on the phone the night before. And the guy on the bow leans over to the other guy who had been training to fly tarpon fish for a couple of years. He goes, you know what? I'll pay the entry fee. If you'll fish, fish Jimmy Nix in the tournament. And Jimmy Nix was not a famous saltwater fly fisherman, but he was a famous fly tire. But, and he had fished all over the world for a lot of things. And he was kind of learning the tarpon game. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll fish you for free. If he'll pay the entry fee, all I want to do is beat some bitch that, that, that canceled me, <laughs> right. you know, yeah. and I want to beat all these guides. So there was one spot open in the tournament left. These, these, these tournaments are semi invitational and it's kind of prestigious to even be involved in one. They, they cap it off at 25 to 30 boats and, it's not easy to, to enter one to start with, but I, so I called the director and there was one spot open. He allowed us to come in because there was only two weeks left, but he, he didn't think he could fill it. And damn, if we didn't go in there and win the thing, it was a five day tournament, 12 pound tippet. And we kind of came from behind on the, on the last couple of days and, and won the tournament. And that was my first exposure to, to guiding in the tarpon tournament scenario. And all those guides, you know, the local guides at the awards banquet, you know, they wouldn't even clap when I was getting my award and, and so forth. But a couple of them, a couple of the veterans came up and, and spoke with me and, and we had a nice conversation and I started seeing these guys on the water, you know, and they would see I was respectful to them. I never cut anybody off. And, and over a couple of years, I, I did gain respect from the locals and shit. Now, now I sit on the panel of all the tournaments and right. I'm like family down there, but it's, it's funny how things evolved through time and it's funny how things the old the old ways used to be this way and now they've kind of changed but that was kind of the beginning of my tarpon tournament career over the next four years i managed to win all four 
the Gold Cup, the Holly, the Golden Fly, and the ladies at the time, all those tournaments were, were pretty big and no one had ever done it. And the first four years that I fished in those tournaments, I was able to to manage to win them all. Wow, that's awesome. That's awesome. Now, you touched on something there that, that just led me down this path, which is really how these whole podcast kind of thing, they kind of go. I usually just take a few notes on my guests, and then we get to talking, and because it's fishing and we have a common passion, it, it just leads itself here. So you just mentioned that, you know, once the local guides figured out that you were respectful, that you weren't cutting people off. You are probably fishing your own water, your own spots, your own fish, doing all yes. those things that we learn to do as charter captains. How, how do you see the fishing community today? Because here on Tampa Bay, we got 2 million people living in the Bay Area. And mm-hmm. uh, it's not the most polite, um, respectful place. And for yeah. a guy like myself, who's been guiding here, this is my 20th year, um, it's irritating to me. You know, I cut my teeth on the south shore of Tampa Bay. There was a handful, four, five, six guys that were running there at the time. And everybody had spots. And and you knew that that little pass on an incoming tide, you know, Captain so-and-so likes to sit there. So I never yeah. went. I never went there. That's kind of his spot. Now I know what's there, and I know what he's catching, and that's cool. But, you know, right. two passes down. I do pretty well on an incoming tide, so that's kind of where I sit. And everybody kind of sees right. you sitting there, and they would kind of be respectful of that. That world has changed here on Tampa Bay. How has it changed for you down it, in the Keys? You just stated the blueprint of exactly what's happened in the Keys. I mean, in the old days, you knew that, that Hank Brown and Billy Knowles would be sitting here on a fall, and so-and-so would be there and so forth. And and I learned I, – I knew what they were fishing, and I knew, you know – why they were fishing there. I understood the movement of the fish just from, from fishing quite a bit, but I'm like, okay, if well, the fish got to go from here to there, there's got to be a spot in between sure. that no one's fishing that yeah. I never see a boat. So that's what I would learn. You know, when I was young in my career, yeah. I'd learned the, the in-between spots and, and that actually improved my knowledge of the game. I, I wouldn't just sit on a point and wait for the fish come to me. I may start on a point and pull two miles down the flat. If no one was there, to learn how the fish travel the edge. Right. And that, therefore, if somebody was on the point I wanted to go to, I could go half a mile down the bank, and, and I knew where those fish were going to travel on a particular tide because I had pulled it 10 times. Right. I think what's changed, you know, in today's world is this instant gratification. You know, people don't want to put in the time. They don't want to put in the work. <laughs> they want to put their boat in, punch in their GPS. They don't, you know, most people don't today don't even understand how to travel the waterways. If their GPS broke, they'd run aground. Right. You know, yeah. you and I learned the game when there was no GPS. You better yeah. figure out how to run around here. When it's cloudy one day, you can't see very good. You better know what's in front of you. I started, you know? I started my days in an action craft, a 19 foot action craft flats boat that didn't have a GPS on it or a fish right. or a fish finder. I used to go to the bridge and instead of just finding your bait on your machine and throwing the net like I do now, which is great, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But back right. in the day, I picked my favorite spot on the bridge and I'd open my cans of chum and I'd start to chum my bait if it didn't show mm-hmm. up in 15 or 20, 30 minutes and you'd have to find a new spot because it wasn't coming to your spot today. So right. that's interesting to me. I, I say it all the time, again, radio, seminars, there is absolutely no substitute there just isn't a substitute for time on the water. 
There just isn't yeah. one. You're not going to be great at it because you, because you stole a spot from somebody else. Or, and I, I guess I shouldn't say stole. You saw somebody fishing there, so you go back there and fish there. That's not teaching you why those fish are there. You're not figuring right. anything out. And the other thing, when I, when I roll across the bay now with some customers, I'm like, man, you know, we've been doing really good over here on the shoreline. We'll run over there. And I get there, and there's somebody sitting there. And it's usually somebody mm-hmm. that saw me there the day before, or whatever. I'm like, okay, no <laughs> yep. big deal, no big deal. Um, and I just move on. And my guys look at me and go, "Dude, that would really, really <sighs> piss me off." And I'm like, you know what? You know what the funny part is? The tide's not right. They're not chewing there right now. They're going to sit there right. for 15 or 20 minutes. They're not going to catch a fish, and they're going to leave because they don't know what they're doing. Half hour from now, 45 minutes from now, that tide's going to be perfect. I was just going to roll in there. We'll sit and fart around, and then we'll have our spot. When it goes off, now we'll right. go fish over here where we should be on this tide. We'll catch a few over here, and then we'll go crush them over there because that guy will be gone. And that's what <laughs> happens because they didn't, they weren't paying, they pay attention to where you're sitting, but they're not paying attention to what's there. Why, you know, what tide was he on? What was the wind doing? You know, it wind just, direction. Yeah, right. there's so right. much of it that's key to every single spot. You know, people ask me all the time, do you like a high tide? you like a low tide? You know, but, but I'm like, listen, every single spot. I don't care what body of water you're fishing, every single spot, when you're dealing with tidal flow in a tidal situation, every single spot has its own characteristic. And a, and a point that is on one part of a, of, a, of a bank, maybe outgoing point, and 60 yards down, the identical point looks exactly the same, even in an aerial photo, that one's an incoming one. They're flip-flop. Mm-hmm. Now, why that is, mm-hmm. I have no idea, but... You learn that from all that time on the water. And I think people really just don't spend enough time doing that stuff, putting their, their research. Agreed. In. Yeah. And the wind direction, I, I find, you know, and especially shoreline fishing and creek mouth fishing and stuff for snook and redfish in the glades. Um, wind direction, a wind tra- change can totally move the water differently around those points with the same tide. Absolutely. So yeah, you know, when you got an east wind and a falling tide, this is this is this is where it's happening. But you get a, a southwest wind or a north wind on the same tide, the water moves around that thing a little differently because of the way the water's being pushed by the wind. Yeah. So all those little things add up to an equation. Yeah. It was one of the things I think that led me to be consistent, although I couldn't, for some reason, could not get lucky enough to win the big redfish tournament. Um, but because we were consistently catching fish, you know, you know, all week you got an east wind and you're dialed into fish. And then, of course, you know, the front comes on Friday and boogers everything up for Saturday morning. But being able to try to figure out that, okay, they were sitting here on this wind. Now the mm-hmm. wind's switched completely around. Where do they go? And why do they go there? You know what I mean? understanding Uh that redfish tend to put their nose into the wind uh, instead of having the wind on their back. Those little things, I think, are the things that people just don't take the time to learn. You said it perfectly, immediate gratification. You know, the phones and the iPads and the the computers and everything at their fingertips 24-7 to me has really, we've lost touch with the art of of finding fish and being patient and and putting your time in. Yeah, I mean, you you don't hear the term fishy anymore. Yeah, you know, in the old days, I, we used to refer to guys that were consistently on fish, consistently finding fish. They were fishy. They just had a sixth sense fishy they dude. were born yep. with. Yep. And, uh, you know, that, that that sense comes from being time on the water and understanding all those little intricacies, you know, that that area has to offer. Guy, people today, you don't, 
I, I don't think they're fishy. It's not because they, they weren't born with the God-given talent. They were. They just haven't put the time in and put all the little idiosyncrasies into, into work. Right. They need to catch a fish right away or they're moving on. Well, and it's almost like, you know, anything else. Um, you know, I was a, a pretty good basketball player in high school, and, and I love to deer hunt now. Well, when I was in high mm-hmm. school, I didn't do anything but play basketball. I mean, that's what I did 24 hours a day. Right. That's why I was pretty good at it. That's what we did. We played hoops every day, all day. You know, my mom ran the Y, so we were at the Y playing all day. And then, you know, high school season comes and the summer AAU comes, and that's just kind of what we did. Um, you know, and, and my daughter plays basketball now, and that's what she does. She just pretty much plays ball. And when I, when I got here to Florida and the, the fishing bug kind of re, you know, rose in my soul, that's pretty much all I did. <laughs> I mean, we, mm-hmm. we were, you know, every, every chance I had, I was either fishing tournaments or, you know, on the water, we were booking trips with people. We were trying to, you know, I was trying to learn knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. How do we figure this out? You know, I want to be able to go catch sure. fish on my own. So it's interesting to me that the world that we live in, that it's, that's just not, just not the case anymore. So with, with, uh, with the obvious success of your TV show, the sea hunter, um, mm-hmm. I know you get to fish a lot of really cool places, uh, just like we do with real animals. It's, it's a blessing. It's one of the gifts that comes with hosting a TV show. Where's your favorite place, Rob, your favorite place, the one place that if you could only fish one more spot for the rest of your life, you know, where would that be and, and why? Yeah. You know, I, I've, I've been blessed, you know, I've been able to go to all, all over the Bahamas. I've been to Costa Rica, Guatemala, fished off the coast of California, North Carolina, was just in Panama and, you know, marlin fishing and doing all these amazing things. Island of Madeira chasing thousand pound blue marlin, doing, doing bucket list trips. And if my last day to fish tomorrow was it, I'd be in Alamorada with a fly rod trying to catch a big tarpon on fly wow. in that clear water. That's awesome. Do it right back to where I started. No kidding. It, yeah. It, I, I mean, I don't know if, if a lot of people would, would give you that answer, but that's, that's the true one for me. Yeah, I get it. I get it. No, and, and it's interesting. I got asked that several years ago after I had left Boca Grande uh, from, from I just gotten too busy to stay down there for the season. My daughter's athletics were taken off, and it was just, mm-hmm. you know, those two months being, you know, in a condo in Boca Grande just got to be too much um, with the radio shows and my schedule. So, I backed out of it, started tarpon fishing, you know, here at home so I could be closer to the family. And uh, mm-hmm. shortly after that, somebody asked me that in an interview, you know, what was the one place? And for me, it was Boca Grande. It was Charlotte Harbor. I took my very first professional check there. Um, mm-hmm. Again, it wasn't a tournament I won, but it was a, a check. And then, you know, there's there's always been something on the west coast of Florida about Boca Grande tarpon guides. You know, if you mm-hmm. were down there in that chaos and could handle it, you know, two trips a day for 60 days straight and, you know, make a bunch of your money for the year down there and deal with all that nonsense in the ditch, um, you know, you, you kind of made a name for yourself. Right. Um, and right. and it, So that's where kind of a lot of things came together for me. So to me, that's kind of where my heart is, too. You know, it's always, I've again, fished Costa Rica and Louisiana and, you know, amazing places, the Keys. Um, you know, been so blessed to do all that stuff. South Carolina, I thought was really cool. Um, but you know, when it comes right down to it, uh, when you love to fish, I think like you and I do, and we're so passionate about it. It's those places that touched our soul early. 
in our careers yeah. sometimes that that really seem to resonate with me. You know, the back of Bull in Turtle Bay, uh, in Charlotte Harbor, you know, catching redfish and snook on the shorelines, and then obviously you know, the incredible tarpon fishing in Boca Grande Pass. And, you know, I, I, I ran my first permit charters uh, down there in Boca Grande during that time. You know, if the tide was terrible mm-hmm. and the tarpon weren't biting and you had a glassed out day, we'd run offshore. And, and I learned to permit fish down there. And, you know, permit are one of my favorite fish to catch. So there's just so many of those things, I think, that resonate. So it doesn't, for, it just doesn't surprise me. I kind of thought that would be the answer you would give me, but, uh, you know, it never, uh, it never hurts to ask that one because sometimes people surprise me. So, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there, and there's still places I want to go. You know, and I'd love to go to Australia, to the Great Barrier Reef, and all that. But, but those early days in Alamorada, all the way to current, you know, they've they've shaped who I am. They've shaped my career. That place has, and it's got a place in my heart that'll never go away. So that's, that's awesome. That's, that's it for me. That's good stuff. So let's talk about the sea hunter. How does the sea hunter, how does it get started? What are you in year four or five? Uh, year, year five. Okay. Yeah. Year five. All right. Year five. How does the sea hunter, how does that come about? So everybody knows the name Jose Wahebe and uh, yeah. Jose was one of my best friends. The, the year that, that the tragedy happened, that he crashed his plane um, a few months earlier before that accident, I had done a lot of episodes with Jose. I got exposed to television with flip film and Walker's K Chronicles stuff in the early days of that. And I always enjoyed the process. I always enjoyed the time on the water with my buddies, you know, when we were filming those things and the unique thing, whenever Jose and I did a show or flip and I, but, but Jose and I, especially, um, we never felt like the cameras were there and we always used to talk about it amongst ourselves. So, you know, it, it was just another day on the water and the cameras just happened to be there for the ride. And I think that friendship and that, and that comfortable feeling in front of the cameras, not even acting like they were there when we did fish together, you know, I think it, it pushed its way to the viewer because, you know, you'd hear comments from viewers saying the same thing. You guys just act so natural together. Right. So Jose had decided that, he no longer wanted to host his show. He wanted to get into to the production side. He, his, his vision of what the Spanish fly show was, he didn't feel like was, was coming to the screen and, and he wanted to, to, to be that process. You know, he wanted to be behind the camera and he wanted his vision to be on the screen. And he asked me to host his show. And while he was loading his plane, the day of the accident, he called me, I was actually supposed to be on that shoot with him and some last minute, date changes. Uh, I couldn't make it, but he was loading his plane and, and we had a meeting the next week to, to talk to the networks and, and kind of unveil this change, you know, where Jose was going to produce and I was going to host the Spanish fly and so forth. So on. And then 10 minutes later, I get a call from a cameraman. I knew that Jose had crashed his plane and was no longer with us. Wow. So about six months passed and, you know, still today I miss the guy. I have a picture of him on my mantle. I look at him every day. But I felt about six months later that something hit me. You know, if this guy had the faith in me to pass on being the face of his show, sure. then then maybe maybe I got to give this a try. Yeah. You know, maybe this is something I need to to pursue. And if it works out, wonderful. If it doesn't, then I, then I'm not going to be kicking myself in the ass down the road saying, "Man, I should have done that." And that was kind of the beginning of the show. 
right it right before that happened around the same time that I made that decision uh another fellow from Texas approached me about starting a, a fly tarpon show called Silver Kings so he and I kind of partnered up and and started that show I did it for for 3 years and it was a great chance for me to to get more involved in the production and and more involved in the understanding of of the producing side of things so it was, it was it was almost kind of a stepping stone into getting my my sea hunter show off the ground. Interesting. I'm a I'm a I'm a very spiritual person, so to me, I always look at you know real animals as uh, God's plan for me mm-hmm. um, because mm-hmm. He blesses me with the opportunity to continue to do it. You know the sponsors and 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 you know in, in my format, I fish with guides all over the world. And, mm-hmm. you know, the the opportunity to fish with those big names and, you know, obviously the his gift to, to bring me those fish on those days that we're filming to put the episodes together. So that, to me, is a really moving story. And to me, it feels like God, you know, just put you in a place where you needed to be, you know, had your schedule yeah, full on right. that day. And, uh, you know, it was, it was Jose's time, uh, unfortunately. And uh, I only yep. met Jose once, but he was extremely warm and friendly and kind to me. Um, and, and, you know, he, he had bigger plans for Rob Fordyce, for the sea hunter, for the voodoo daddy. So, you know, I think, uh, I think that's great. And, and, you know, I know you, you get a lot of accolades and a lot of praise on your show. Um, but I, for sure, from, you know, from, from my heart, uh, I, I congratulate you on your success. I think it's a good show. I think you're a great host. Um, I, I like your, your presence on camera. Uh, whether mm-hmm. you you know learned that from Jose or wherever you got it from, I think it works really well. Um, you know we have the same production team now, so uh, yep. I know my my camera guys and my production team praises working with you, and they really enjoy it. So uh, you know that my hats off to you in that front for sure. You've done a great job. It's a great show. What's uh what's on cue for 2020? Where does the show air? Uh, the, the show actually just started airing. Okay, that's uh, right. Your first week. quarter. That's right. Your first quarter. Yep. Just started airing on the Outdoor Channel. It'll air there for 26 weeks. Um, the prime airing is being 10:30 on Saturday and 7:30 on Sunday mornings, and they have a couple more during the week. But it'll be there for 26 weeks, and then uh, it'll move over to World Fishing Network for the next, the last 26 weeks nice. for third and fourth quarter. Okay. And you know, talking about my show and and all the things I've I've heard all the same things about you. Um, you know, you just you seem like a gentle giant. You know, every time we're together. And and all the camera guys have kind of related to what a good guy you are, and there's not not a lot of us left, so it's good to hear. Yeah, I agree. I, I appreciate that very much. I think, uh, um, you know, just treating people the way that uh, you know my father taught me to treat people. Um, yeah. You know uh, the way his dad taught him to treat people. You know, I I I don't take myself very serious in the industry. Um, I, I laugh a lot of times because in this in this business. It isn't very big. You know, I try to tell people the fishing industry itself, the entire fishing industry ends up in one room at yeah. ICAST every <laughs> That's year. That's right. The That's entire right. fishing industry, except for boats and motors and trailers, everything else about the fishing world almost is in one giant room in Orlando, Florida every year at ICAST. So it's not yep. a very big business. And and the fact that you're blessed enough to do what you do, um, 
you know, I see sometimes, you know, some of the hosts and, and there isn't a lot of, most of the hosts are really great guys. They're really good friends of mine, but there's a few out there that seem to get a chip on their shoulder. And I'm like, listen, it's not something to be arrogant about. You're blessed to get to do what you do for a living. There's no reason for you to, to be a knucklehead. You know, That's it's, right. it's not a, there's a lot of great fishermen. I tell people all the time, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty doggone good fisherman. There's no doubt. But right here in Tampa Bay, there's guys way better than I am. Way better. Sure. There's guys here that have forgot more than I'll ever know, no matter how long I grind to know it all. Um, sure. So, yeah, so I think that's, uh, I think that's pretty, uh, you know, it's pretty interesting. And, and again, I think it's one of the things that, you know, endears people to you as well, because uh, you're a pretty big fellow, which we got to talk about before we, before we cut Absolutely. this thing off. Yeah, you're, uh, so what's the approach? What is Rob Fordyce's gym approach? How long have you been training? I mean, you're a big dude. So, I mean, obviously you put your time in. You know, I started, I started training, you know, pretty seriously, 15, 16 years old. And it, it really, at that time, it, it didn't have a lot to do with, you know, fishing or anything like that. It was more sports driven. Sure. I played baseball and football, you know, from, from six years old on. And once I got to high school, um, I, I did have the ability in both, you know, to take it to the next level. I ended up injuring my neck in, in a way um, my last year playing football that everybody decided that it'd be very risky to, to continue that sport, but I did continue with baseball and I went to university of Tennessee on a baseball scholarship, played there for a short time and three rotator cuff surgeries later, <laughs> I came home and, uh, and started pursuing my passion of fishing. But I think that, you know, the early days training, trying to reach a goal, trying to get stronger, faster, so forth, kind of, kind of began, the, the desire to, to want to go to the gym, but definitely today it's, it's five, four or five days a week, occasionally six, but definitely four or five days a week. It's just, it's my mental anchor. I start, I start every day, you know, getting up very early, whether I'm fishing or not. And, and I make it to the gym for an hour. I've had, I don't know, six shoulder surgeries, pec reattachment, spinal fusion, L5, S1, ankle surgery, dislocated <laughs> hands, fingers. And I think the only way I'm able to, to be competitive fishing now, you know, I'll be, I'll be 50 next week is, is that I have continued, you know, a, a 30 plus year relationship with the gym. Yeah. I'm able to do things that, that guys my age normally can't do. Yeah. And, I, and I totally, uh, I totally point my finger at, at being in the gym and being consistent in the old days. It was see how much weight you could lift, you know, and you had your little team of buddies that were all trying to beat each other, bench pressing and deadlifting and squatting and all that stuff. As you get older, you get a little smarter. And after you, <laughs> you go under the knife a few times, you definitely get smarter or you're going to continue that, that route. So it's not, it's not so much about the weight anymore, even though I think if you compared it to the average guy, it's still a lot of weight you're moving around. It's more about just, staying in really good shape, feeling good about who you are and, and, and more, more mentally than, than physically. Yeah. I, I, for me, that's been, that's been the reason that I've been in there. I've been in there for about 30 years myself. I'm 51 going on 52. And, uh, I think it's a huge part of being able to do what we do, you know, throwing the cast net every morning, sometimes mm -hmm. in three footers, you know, where you see some younger guys struggling and I'm like, come on, man, this is, this is breakfast work. Yeah. This is, this is puppy stuff, you know? So I, I think that's a bonus. You know, I was a basketball player and I got stationed in, uh, 
I guess, stationed in Europe uh, after screwing mm-hmm. up in high school uh, academically pretty bad. Uh, had college offers, uh, but wasn't wasn't a very good student. So I went in the military, played overseas, and when I got over there, I was, you know, I graduated high school at like two hundred pounds, six five, two bills. You get over right. there, and you're not playing against twenty two year old guys. You're playing against twenty seven and twenty eight year old men. And mm-hmm. I, my my skill set was strong enough to be there, but my body wasn't. And that's what drove me to the weight room. Was I'm like, okay, well now I can I can out jump that guy, but every time he puts that large elbow in my chest, it irritates me, and I can't do anything about it. So that's why I found the weight room so that I could put weight and size on, so that I could right. compete over there. And it just it kind of stuck, you know. Now I get people are like, so what position in football did you play? I'm like, actually, yeah. actually yeah. I was a basketball player, and they're like, really? I'm like, yeah, you know, right up until I was about 250 pounds, and then I then I just kind of gave up on it because it got too hard on my knees. So. Um, sure. But it's interesting, you know, that, and I think that, again, that lends itself, that discipline, that mental discipline that you have lends it to, you know, being one of the best charter captains in the world. You know, your ability to be patient every day, get in there, do the things you need to do to get your brain right, to get your body right, to do what you do. So I commend you for that as well. One more thing before I let you go, because this one's, this one's just a question I had to know. I actually came in here for the podcast and my producer was like, What? Do they call him? I'm like, yeah, he's the voodoo daddy. <laughs> How do you get a moniker? How do you get a moniker like the voodoo daddy? Because, you know, I'm just Captain Mike. It's not really sexy. There's nothing really cool about it. Dude, you're right. the voodoo daddy. That's a pretty cool gig right there. That's a cool name. Yeah. You know, I wish I had like a really glamorous, badass story to tell you about <laughs> that. It, 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 but it is a pretty cool story. Um, when when my son was, was little, I mean, you know, four or five years old, anything big that he saw, big train, a big giant truck, a big crane, whatever. I don't know where he picked it up from, but he'd be, look at the big, bad voodoo daddy crane, you know, look at the big, bad voodoo daddy truck, whatever. <laughs> and at this, at, at this same period of time, I had a weekly radio show okay. I hosted with a couple other fishing captains. So I had, Jose and I actually had gotten sponsored by, by Seacraft this, this same year. And, and, it was when Seacraft came out with a 32 center console. And at the time, the 32 Seacraft was the biggest center console you could buy. No one, had, you know, there was a 31 contender, 31 CV, but nothing, nothing bigger than that. So it was a giant boat. I was out fishing in the skiff with customers. They delivered that 32 Seacraft to my house. And, and my, my wife and my son went out to see, see dad's new boat. And as soon as he saw it, he goes, oh, look at the big, bad voodoo daddy boat. Well, my wife tells me the story. We named the boat Voodoo Daddy. I tell the story on the radio the next week. And from that point forward, for the next two years, every radio show, I was no longer Rob Fordyce. I was, they would, they would talk to me as the Voodoo Daddy. <laughs> That's a cool story, it, though. That's a cool story. Yeah, tied and just to, take it off from there. Yeah, tied to your kid, man. I always, every, it's been one of those things, you know, you and I don't get a chance to sit down and talk like this, so we're usually in passing, so it's not the right time to ask you that. But I've always been like, right. you, know, you get a cool name like the Voodoo Daddy. Well, there it is. It, it yeah. actually was going to be the name of my show. The I Voodoo Daddy. Yeah, I don't blame you. That would have been a cool name. Uh, I like to see him. And the, we, we shot the pilot and, and, and you know, had the name Voodoo Daddy on there. And the Florida Keys Tourism Development Council uh, was going to become the title sponsor of the show. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting at a meeting with all these people from the board. And they're all like, well, tell us about this name. And I told them the same story as I just told you. And they're like, it's a cool, hip name. It's It's snappy. 
and I'm very superstitious, so it kind of fit me. You know, as a fisherman, I'm, you know, I'm very meticulous about lucky hats and lucky shirts <laughs> and all that. So it all fit. Right. Except the keys felt like it was it was related to like Cajun, ah, Louisiana, sure. so forth, and being they were going to be the title sponsor. They're like, you got to come up with a different name. So I took a couple of weeks and, and came up with the Sea Hunter. Sea Hunter Boats is obviously a, a big sponsor, but but the Sea Hunter kind of fits as as to what I do as well. Sure. So yeah. that's that's where that came to be. That's great stuff. Captain Rob Fordyce, the host of the Sea Hunter, thank you so much for uh spending a little time with me. I know as a charter captain and as a, a busy show host, I know how precious your time is and uh I really appreciate you spending some time with me, my brother. I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's making making me want to have a beer with you next time we we sit down. I think that's a really good plan either way. I like that plan, and I'll buy. How about that? Sounds good, buddy. All right, my friend. Take care. Have a great year, and and I look forward to seeing you soon. Me as well. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Real Animals Podcast as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. The Voodoo Daddy, Captain Rob Fordyce. I've been wanting to get this podcast in for a while now. Super talented guy. Just, in my opinion, one of the true beasts in the fishing industry. Uh, the way he lives his life, uh, you know, spending time in the gym and and just being a, a just all-around bad man on the water. Uh, really, really enjoyed spending some time with him. Again, I really hope you enjoyed that. Remember, the Real Animals podcast are available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and ritampabay.com. Remember, it's real important if you subscribe, rate, and review. We try to drop episodes on each and every Tuesday, sometimes with my schedule. It doesn't always work that way, but we are definitely trying to do that. And remember that the Real Animals Podcast are presented by our good friends at Contender Boats. Thanks for chiming in. We appreciate it. I'm Jerry Petuck, CEO of Radio Influence. There are a lot of people behind the scenes here at Radio Influence that work hard to keep you entertained day in and day out. If you'd like to get involved and advertise on any of our programming, or if you have some show ideas you'd like to see us add to the Radio Influence family, please email us at contact at radioinfluence.com. We all have crazy schedules, so the fact that you take time out of your busy day to let us entertain you for a while means more than you could ever know. Without you, the listener, we wouldn't exist. So thank you again for downloading and subscribing to all of our programming. You can find all of Radio Influence's programming on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com.